I want to read to you the parable of the wheat and the tares. One remarkable thing about this parable is that Jesus explained it himself. You don't have to call in a Bible scholar to explain it. Jesus took care of that. And it's found in Matthew 13, beginning with verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed. I beg your pardon. Verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Now here's the explanation. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who hath ears to hear. Let him hear. I went over that one the other day as I was out walking, pondering it just while I've been here in one of my circuits over where I stay. As many times as I've read it, it gripped me all over again with the terrific finish to that story. <clears throat> Billy Graham's father-in-law, Dr. Nelson Bell, wrote a book titled, While Men Slept. He sent me a copy. And he uh, put this as uh, his autograph to Vance Havner, <clears throat> who has never slept and has kept a lot of other people awake. Now, I call that a real compliment. I don't think I deserve it. But it's about time we developed a brand of preachers who don't sleep in this sense and who keep people awake at any cost. Much is said and written on the subject, but to this day we don't understand sleep entirely. There are a lot of puzzling problems about sleep and about dreams. Sleep's one of God's blessings we take for granted. I had two years in my life when I was beset seriously with insomnia. 
And I learned to thank God every morning since then for a night of rest. I, I pity anybody who can't sleep. And that is when it's really serious, not when you think you don't and you do, but when you really don't. That's another matter uh, entirely. And when uh, my sorrow came two years ago, I thought, now I'm afraid that'll come back. The doctor gave me some uh, tablets and said, these are mild, they won't hurt you. And I took a few, but one night I said, Lord, I'd rather not take this stuff. Bible says he giveth his beloved sleep. And I'd like to ask you for that. And that's been two years ago, and I haven't had any problem since. I'm like that old bishop who couldn't sleep and got up at two in the morning and opened his Bible, and it said, He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. He said, Lord, if you're setting up, no use me doing I'm going to bed. Good night. And that's the way I felt. The Bible has a lot to say about sleep. And many wonderful experiences are related to it. While Adam slept, God took a rib from his side and made Eve. Now, some of the connotations of that may not please women's lib, I'm afraid. But that's what happened. Abraham had a great message from God in a deep sleep. Jacob slept at Bethel with a stone for a pillow, and the pillow became a pillar, you remember. And he saw angels coming and going from heaven to earth. Samuel was cold when he lay down to sleep. And our Lord was aroused from sleep to still the storm. But there are others who slept when they should have been awake. Jonah, that runaway preacher, on a ship headed the wrong direction, was asleep. And the shipmaster aroused him, saying, What meanest thou, O sleeper? People always talk about the great revival in Nineveh. But that revival didn't start in Nineveh. It started with Jonah. God sometimes has to wake up a preacher to start a revival. They don't always start in a place. They start in a preacher sometimes. Then the disciples slept in the Garden of Gethsemane. I've always thought that if there had been any place on earth where I think I would have stayed awake, it would have been in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. But they slept. And then uh, we are warned against this business of sleeping. For instance, in Proverbs 6, How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. God doesn't want his people to be asleep when they ought to be awake. But I'm concerned with this parable, and especially with those three words, while men slept. The devil does much of his worst work today while men sleep. America is asleep tonight. Now, that doesn't mean inactive, because you can walk in your sleep. And a lot of what I see today is somnambulism. We've got a nation of sleepwalkers, cocaine and chloroformed and anesthetized and desensitized and hypnotized in a stupor and in a coma. And while America sleeps, the enemy's busy. Not only communism, that's bad enough, and it's more serious than some folks like to think. I'm not looking for a communist under every bed, but 
Country after country falls into the lap of communism. Today, you know it. And at the rate we're going, we won't need to be invaded militarily. Just give us enough rope and enough time, and we'll hang ourselves. We're in the process right now. Bicentennial celebrations won't save us. You can't create patriotism by pageants and parades. It's going to take more than three-cornered hats and uh, knee breeches and powdered wigs and drum beating and all the rest of it to revive the spirit of 76. Nobody likes to be aroused, you know, from a deep sleep. And the few today who are trying to bring this country to its senses are resented, and they're called witch hunters and rabble-rousers and calamity howlers. Sad fares the land to hastening ills of prey. Wealth accumulates and men decay. Old Charles G. Finney, who by the grace of God woke up more people than anybody else in his day and generation, said there are very few preachers in any time who know how to wake up the church so as to keep it awake. Today we're asleep. We've seen so much that we're fed up and nothing bothers us much anymore. Look at the rottenness in high places today. We've had a lot of that lately. The breakdown of our homes. Our moral codes are in the wastebasket. And who cares? So what? I've quit saying civilization is going to the dogs out of respect for dogs. There are plenty of people doing things today beneath the dignity of any dog. I heard of a hog that got drunk some time ago, and when he sobered up, he called in the other hogs and said, If you'll excuse me for acting like a man, I never will do it again. You see it everywhere. These little magazines that you get in the cities uh, listing the attractions, and I got hold of one this week. One-fourth of a page given to churches on the same page with the bar and the discotheque. And a supplement inside advertising, advertising shows that you'd have been sent to jail for advertising just a very few years ago. Rent-a-girl ads, nude shows. I don't, I'm not surprised that Ruth Graham said when she watched Billy writing in his book, the terrible statistics of shame and sin. I'm not surprised that she said if God doesn't send judgment on America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I think that's not overstating it at all. Rome grew up in the Forum and died in the Colosseum. Shakespeare said if all the year were playing holidays, sport would be as tedious as work. Well, we've come to the time when sport is now, it's not a recreation, it's a monster big business in America. And uh, only God knows how many, including preachers, sit all Sunday afternoon, eyes glued to television, and better posted on athletic scores than on the Word of God. The church is asleep, not inactive, we never have done more than we're doing today, but Sardis had a name to be alive when it was dead. Jesus said, you're dead. You've got a name to be alive. 
Now, it doesn't say here that while men gambled and drank and caroused, the enemy sowed the tares. It just says while they slept. They weren't doing anything terrible. They were just asleep. And Jesus says that before he comes back, it'll be like it was in the days of Noah. He didn't say they were gambling and drinking and carrying on. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, buying and selling, planting and building. Well, what, what's wrong with that? Nothing. If you keep it where it belongs, but when it's all that you do, then that's worldliness. That's being taken up with the transient things of this world. And that's where we are tonight. You listen to any crowd talk anytime you want to, and I'll guarantee you that 90% of what you hear will be about eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, buying and selling, planting and building. That's what they're talking about. Because that's their life. Jesus said, before I come back, that'll be people's life, and it is now. And you notice that this enemy did not plow up the wheat. That might have awakened the farmers. He just sowed tares, or darnel it really is. It's been called bastard wheat. It looks so much like wheat that only the angels know the difference, Jesus said. And the devil is smart enough today to come into the church and uh, sow in the church imitation Christians. And the majority of the church membership of America today, one of our great leaders said three-fourths of our church membership show no evidence of ever having been born again. Imitation. And uh, you couldn't tell the wheat from the tares. The church is deluged with that. I've been preaching a mighty long time, and I'd like to get in some church where most of the members thought a revival was worth going to. Most of them couldn't care less. I've never been in a church yet where most of the membership thought the revival was worth going out to. I never see most of them. I see a pretty good portion of them on Sunday morning when the morning glories are all there, blooming. But after that, you have sometimes 50-50, you have the faithful, thank God, for them and the visitors. I belong to a church with 3,800 members, and our auditorium seats 1,600. They don't expect the other half to come, and they don't. And it's built it to accommodate half the membership, and that's pretty generally true over the country. Well, now, you can't separate those saints and the sinners. It says so in this parable. They said, well, why don't we go out and get out here and tear up all this? No, no. You cannot tell who's a Christian and who's not. Don't try that. It's not your business. Because there are a lot of folks that act mighty like Christians that are not going to be saved. And there are a lot of other people that are not as good as they ought to be, but they have been saved, and they'll be saved as by fire, as Paul puts it. And that's no excuse, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves and repent and get right with God. But you can't go out here and jerk up, you'll get some wheat along with the tares. And so this very parable says you leave that to the angels. Thank God for the angels. They know who's who. And they'll take care of that one of these days. But one thing we ought to do, we ought to screen them carefully before they ever come in. We ought to be mighty careful as far as we can possibly ascertain to know whether they have had any experience of Jesus Christ. 
a lot of people who join church by letter these days, they'd be insulted if you'd say to them, will you tell us your Christian experience? But really it ought to be done because a lot of them don't have any. I've been in many a church that started out as a sheepfold and wound up looking like a zoo. Got about everything in it. And uh, I know the church is a melting pot, but if you aren't careful, you'll have a pressure cooker on your hand. Now, an enemy hath done this, it says here. This is the work of the devil. And the devil's at work today. It's a well-known fact that many of the great old colleges and universities of America started out as church-sponsored institutions, and they've been invaded and captured by liberalism and unbelief while the men slept. All over this land there are great schools that once were built on the Word of God. And the devil came in a little bit at a time. He's very slick about that. The camel gets his head in the tent, and then after a while all the camel's in the tent. And he comes in on issues that seem so small that nobody wants to lift a hand against it. That's the tactics of the devil. He always starts with something so little that you would be a nitpicker if you said anything about it, but give it a few years and it's too late. The serpent becomes a boa constrictor and the trickle becomes a torrent. <clears throat> That's his plan. And it's going on in all our institutions today, and some are farther along in it than others. We're asleep, and God's calling us, Awake thou that sleepest, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. That's for the sinner. Awake to righteousness, and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. That's the church members. It's high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. That's for Christians. Let us not sleep as do others. That's for us. Our Lord said in the garden when those disciples were sleeping, he said two things. He first said, sleep on now and take your rest. Brother, that's one verse a lot of the saints are certainly obeying these days. They took him mighty seriously on that these days. But he went right on to say, Arise, let us be going. The first was not to be taken too seriously. And the trouble about this waking up is that a lot of people wake up in a revival. It's not that they don't wake up, they don't get up. You've awakened many a time and turned over and went back to sleep and slept more soundly than you ever did before. And I've been in plenty of revivals where they woke up, yes, always had a great revival, and give them two weeks and they're sleeping again. They didn't get up. The prodigal son not only said, I will arise and go to my father, that's decision. I hear a lot about so many decisions, so many decisions. They're not worth anything unless they're followed by action. What did he do next? He said, I will arise and go to my father. And he arose and went to his father. That's what mattered. I sometimes say two frogs were on the side of a pond and one of them decided to jump. How many frogs did that leave? And everybody says one. I said, no. I didn't say he jumped. I just said he decided to jump. Still had two frogs on the bank. We've got a lot of people who decide to jump and they never jumped. And it isn't enough to protest the work of the devil. There's a time when we ought to do it. 
And it's not enough to legislate. There's a time when we ought to do it. But that isn't enough. The early church swept the Roman Empire just by being Christians. And all the implications of that word, that's all. They didn't just protest and go up and down the street with banners protesting uh, the emperor and protesting idolatry and all the rest of it. They just lived it and it turned the world upside down in a couple of centuries. And then what ruined it was Constantine professed to be a Christian and the army was baptized and everybody started joining church and we never have gotten over that to this day. It became the end thing. Everybody became a church member. I could have led some people to the Lord if they hadn't joined the church. They get in the church and say, you don't mean me. There they are, and they're almost immune from then on to any kind of preaching. But the early church just lived Jesus Christ and swept the empire. The salt has lost its savor. I've been in, in uh, evangelistic conferences with that great black preacher from Los Angeles, Dr. E.V. Hill. Uh, if you haven't heard that man, you, you've got a great treat awaiting you if you possibly can. He can preach. He's doing a phenomenal work out there in the Watts section where all the trouble was in Los Angeles. And he said that some time ago he checked on Black Panthers in one of our great cities, had whole one side of that city paralyzed, scared to death. People couldn't walk the streets at night, closed up their businesses early. Black Panthers, Black Panther. He said, I checked with the FBI and I asked, how many are there? How many? And they said, well, we have located only uh, 81. 81 kept all that vast area in the grip of fear. 81 agents of the devil. And he said had churches all over the place. Where were the Christians? Why weren't we counting for God and for righteousness? That'll make you think. Here you are. You know Dallas, Fort Worth, my soul. Think of the churches everywhere. And yet. Conditions get worse this afternoon. Crime up 18% this year. Teenage crime ahead of all previous records. And everybody yawns. Some of them take another cigarette and get back to the ball game. So what? Somebody's going to have to take a stand for God and righteousness like we've not taken it. God's not going to intervene until the church gets into something. One reason God's not intervening today is there's not much to intervene about. The average church member is not disturbing the devil enough to get his attention. God's not going to visit in any little church club sipping coffee and listening to the minutes of the last meeting. We've got to get absorbed in things that really count. Peter Marshall used to say that the trouble with us is we're dressed up in divers' outfits we spend our time pulling plugs out of bathtubs. Or like wearing a sailor suit to cross a creek. Got all this paraphernalia, but we're not going anywhere. I'm amazed sometimes at the silly things people can think of when a preacher's pouring his heart out. I remember some time ago I had done my dead level best and some dear soul came up and guess what he asked? He said, do you know why did the dogs not eat the palms of Jezebel's hands? 
Now that's a profound issue. Uh, and I said, well, I'm surprised that they ate any of her as tough as she was. <laughs> I think you've got to answer folks according to their questions sometimes. I wrote a book and called it Not Peace But a Sword. It was a sort of a novel about a young preacher and a group of his church members who decided to take Jesus Christ seriously and see what happened. And brother, plenty happened. I got him in more trouble in 10 pages than I could get him out of in 200. But do you know it's not been a popular book? I know several preachers that got awakened by it. But uh, by and large, it was a little too rich for some folks' blood. I, I'd like to know what would happen if, if just the nucleus of church members anywhere in America and any of our churches, just the Gideon's band, just kindling wood, make up their minds. You know that old book, In His Steps, that carried out that idea and sold five million copies, and it uh, had a profound effect in its time. But today we're asleep. God grant us more Christians who've caught a gleam of glory bright and have determined to climb the utmost height and while their companions slept, were toiling upward through the night. They that sleep, sleep in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober. Now, I cannot close tonight without reminding you of the way this parable of the wheat and the tares ends in that great and awful day that's nearer than we may think tonight. It says that the counterfeit Christians and the unconverted church members and the bastard wheat will be bundled and cast into a furnace of fire where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's a frightful picture. And we've done our best in the last few years to tone it down and tone it down. And scholars have tried to say, well, Jesus was just accommodating himself to the ideas of his time it's just a figure of speech. Well, anybody knows that the reality is always worse or better than the figure, as the case may be. That's always true. I had a country church and a farmer there was an infidel, and he didn't like my preaching, and he said, I don't like this preaching on hell. Why don't you preach more about the meek and lowly Jesus? Well, what he didn't know was that I got most of my information about hell from the meek and lowly Jesus. He's the one told us about it, most of it. There isn't much more in the Bible about it. He's the one that said it's the place where the worm never dies in all the decay there, and the fire never goes out. Well, now, you can tone it down all you want to, but as old A.T. Robertson used to say about that other verse, except a man hate father, mother, and so on, he cannot be my disciple. He said, sure, it's... Uh, it's a glorified exaggeration, but he said, don't tone it down till you lose the point of it. And there's serious danger that we do that today. I don't like to have to ever preach on hell. And I can appreciate how some folks are trying to figure out some way to avoid uh, believing in it. But who am I? This is not some, a bunch of theologians that got together and said this is the way it is. It's the language of Jesus himself. 
the meek and lowly Jesus. And either he's the Son of God or he's the biggest imposter who ever came along. And either this is absolute or it's obsolete. And I have only one of two choices in this world. And there aren't any others. After he preached a great sermon on the bread of life, the crowd fell away. Everybody left him a few at a time. Several verses and some more leave and then some more leave. This is a hard saying, they said, who can hear it? And then he got down to the disciples and he said, you go in too? And Peter said, where would we go? And that's the place we get to sometimes. If you're not going with him, have you got any other suggestion? There isn't anything else but despair. Either he's the son of God. I've walked along the shores of the Sea of Galilee and sat one afternoon all alone on the top of the Mount of Olives and I stood morning after morning and looked out the window over Jerusalem way before sunup and thought about how he wept over it from that Mount of Olives and that he's coming back one of these days to split the place wide open according to the book of Zechariah and I wish I could be there when he does. But I've said to myself, I've either got to stake everything on the fact that Jesus Christ was real and the Son of God. If he wasn't the Son of God, if he wasn't what he claimed to be, he was an imposter. And I believe he's what he claimed to be. And if I don't take my stand with him, I've got nothing left but chaos and despair and hopelessness and hell. And it's the same way with you. And he said, there's coming a day when everybody is going to do one of two things. You're going to suffer or you're going to shine because it says, then shall the righteous shine in the kingdom of their father. And everybody in here tonight has got a date with deity and an appointment with the Almighty. And one of these days it'll all be settled for all eternity whether you forever suffer or forever shine. And that's all there is. There isn't anything else to choose from. No wonder he wound up this parable by saying, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Hearing's one thing, listening something else. Jesus spoke of those uh, who uh, hearing heard not. He said, hearing they hear not. Did you know you could hear and not hear both at the same time? You can hear what the preacher says and yet not hear God. You cannot hear what God wants you to hear. Now, I hope you don't do that tonight. What a tragic thing it is to hear and not hear both. Be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. This message <clears throat> came to my heart last Saturday, and I couldn't escape. The seriousness of it, as long as I've been a preacher, all these 62 years, I've read this. And even before then, before I became a preacher. And I knew it, know it pretty well by heart, the parable. But if you let the Holy Spirit help you, it'll blaze in you as though you never read it before. And I found myself saying, God help me that when that day comes, 
They that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars of the firmament forever and ever. There's only one thing that will make the difference. When the Titanic went down in 19 and 12, old Mordecai Ham used to say that God was giving us an object lesson in America and we didn't get it. That ship was unsinkable, they said, when they made it, and it was brand new and it met its fate. Unsinkable, and the only thing it ever did was sink on the very first trip. And God was saying, you're going to see the day of the sinking of the unsinkable, and we've been seeing it ever since. The thing that can't happen is happening every day. And then the embarrassing thing about the Titanic was that that magnificent ship went to its doom when it ran into a plain old-fashioned hunk of ice out there in the water. Man's finest collides with God's eternal law and down it goes if it's not in his will. And on that boat they had all kinds of people, millionaires, people of middle means and down in the steerage poor folks. But when it was all over, and over in New York, they hung up in the canard offices the two lists. They just had two lists, lost and saved. And so, and you were one or the other. And my friend tonight, I don't know which classification you're in, but one of these days, it won't matter whether you were butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whether you lived on the boulevard or lived in the backwoods. No matter whether you drove a Cadillac or pushed an apple cart through town, the only thing that'll matter then is which list are you in. But as long as you live, you can swap from lost to saved. But there comes a day when the list is finished. And so it says here, that these counterfeit church members, that's, that's the darnel, that's the the kind that look like Christians. That's the frightening thing about it. Do us good to get a little bit excited sometimes. Say, my soul, maybe I'd better check. Am I really saved? I'd like to ask you tonight. Anybody in here that you've sort of taken it for granted? Well, I joined the church and I'm not so bad and all the rest of it. Wait a minute. You can look so much like it. It frightens me when I remember that Jesus said at the judgment day there will be preachers who will say, Lord, we cast out demons, we've done mighty works, and we're we've prophesied, and he said, I never knew you. My soul, if a man can be that good and be an exorcist, uh, in this day when you're hearing so much about exorcism, if he can be that good, if he can prophesy and do wonderful works, and yet one day Jesus called him a worker of iniquity. That's the word that's used there. Now, if you can be that good and still Jesus called you a worker of iniquity, that's something to get excited about. My Lord was very severe because he wanted us to be sure. Out of his great heart of love, he wanted us not to be deceived about ourselves. And because he died for us and because he loves us so, he does want us to be severe with ourselves sometimes. Take ourselves sternly in hand and say, Now look here, what about this? Do I belong to the wheat? Or do I belong to the bastard wheat? 
and even fool myself. And it'll take the angels to separate them, and one of these days is going to be done. And it says he'll send his angels to clean up this world. You know, we tried. Every once in a while, people try to clean up this and clean up that, and they never get anything cleaned up down yet. But one of these days, he's going to send the angels. They're going to give it a spring cleaning and take out all these evil things and them that work iniquity. So I beg you tonight, dear friends, I couldn't get this off my mind, never preached it before in my life, not this message, may not again. But it must evidently be meant for somebody here tonight. God does not give a preacher a sermon and bring people to church for nothing. God's not wasting time like that. If he gives a preacher a sermon, there's somebody there that night that specially needed it. I believe my God's a God of order and of wisdom. And I don't know who needs to do what. 